Let's turn our Bibles to 1 John and chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We are in our morning series continuing in this epistle of 1 John. And we will read verse 7 down to verse 12, which is the paragraph we have been considering for a number of weeks now. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 12. The Bible reads there in the English Standard Version, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, those are the words that John wrote in order to convince those who claim to be Christians that they are either Christians or they are not Christians. Because as we've already seen, the whole reason why First John was written was in order to assure those who believe in the Lord Jesus, who truly believe in the Lord Jesus, to assure them that they are indeed children of God. That's very clear from chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why it was written. It is so that we may know that we possess eternal life. Now, as you might know, this is a double-edged sword. In other words, as you continue looking at these texts that are there in the Bible, in this epistle, you might pass or you may fail. Now, assuming you pass, it becomes a positive uh, assurance. You, you recognize God has saved me. Here is the evidence. But on the opposite end, you may find yourself outside as you are looking at these tests. And consequently, you realize, oh-oh, Although I've been going to church all my life, in actual fact, 
I am not a true Christian. I am not the genuine article. Now, the goodness is that when you realize it now, before you die, it, it means you can cry to the Lord Jesus Christ to now really, really save you. So, in that sense, even the negative becomes positive. It is a means, nonetheless, to help you to really experience true salvation. So, we are currently in this rather lengthy section in which John is dealing with the test of salvation, which is love. The test of salvation, which is love. And it began in chapter 3 and verse 11 with the words, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And all the way from there, except for chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 6, which was a bit of a detour, he has continued hammering home this point that we ought to love one another. And clearly, the length of the argument itself should show you that this is an important test. You don't sit there and say to yourself, well, this issue of love must be for the hyper-spiritual, as we are just common, common, common Christians. Therefore, you know, we shouldn't bother ourselves. No, no, no. He has gone to town, as it were, over this issue. Surely, it must be because it is a very basic test. Each one of us must ask ourselves the question, do I love the brethren? Do I really love the brethren? Do I really, really love the brethren? And if I discover I don't, instead of excusing myself, I better make sure God genuinely saves me. Now, in the last two installments, we saw John showing us what love looks like. And that was in chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 10. And you notice both verses begin with, this is love. This is love. Verse 9 says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, if you want to know what love looks like, don't go into the shops or restaurants on Valentine's Day. That's not where you look if you want to see what love looks like. You, you go to Golgotha. You go up Calvary's mountain. 
you look at the cross where Jesus hung and died, then you say, this is love. This is love. And that does not change because God himself has manifested his love. And since God is love, you therefore can genuinely say, I have finally seen what love looks like. We spent quite a bit of time looking at those two verses. And now, today, we are looking at the two implications of God's love. The two implications of God's love. And John begins to talk about these two implications with that favorite statement of his beloved. Beloved. It's the seventh time he's using it in this epistle. Beloved. In fact, it's the last time he uses it. Beloved. He's an apostle of love. His bowels of love, as it were, pour out to us now. He's turned from Calvary and is coming to us as those who profess to be Christians. And he's saying to us, now that we have gazed at Calvary, this is the implication. And in the implication, first of all, he shows us the obligation that this manifestation of God's love brings to us. What is the obligation? Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The first is the obligation. If this is what has happened, if this is the way God has shown his love, then we are obligated. It's not a good idea. We are obligated. It's not a suggestion. We are commanded and we are obligated to love. The second implication is the significance of this. The significance of this. And he puts it this way. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We begin to see why this is important. And as we shall see in a moment, it is important because it reveals in this world God, whom we can't see. It enables people to see a God who otherwise they don't see. Well, let's look at these two implications very quickly. The first implication is that of obligation. We are obligated. And I've already said that John uses a word of endearment to take us back to Calvary. Beloved, if God so loved 
us. If this is true, then this is what we ought to do. It is we ought to love one another. Now this is in a number of ways. First of all, it is because God has given us a very clear example of love. A very clear example of love. So you, 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 you can no longer say, I, I don't understand what you mean when you say, I should love the brethren. I don't really understand what you mean. Well, the reason why you can't say, I cannot understand what you really mean is because you've got a display of this love already. And it is this, that God goes out of his way, he gives, he sacrifices, not for his friends, not for those who've been his benefactors, but he gives and he sacrifices for those who are his enemies in order to rescue them from an otherwise terrible end. And what he's therefore saying is that that's what we ought to do for one another. We have the example. And I think that's important. Because, you see, for most of us, our understanding of loving one another is that among my friends, we, 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 we love each other. We, we care for each other. Among my friends. So when my friend is sick in the church, I'm there. When he needs money, I, I give him some money. My friends in the church, we are buddies. We have nice fellowship. We love one another in the church among my friends. Now, this passage is going far beyond that. Because Jesus was not dying for his friends. It was for his enemies. In other words, that brother, that sister who rubs you the wrong way in the church, who irritates you, you now going out of your way to give and to sacrifice for him or for her. That's the example we have here. That's the example. And immediately it raises the issue of loving one another to another level. Because then you begin to ask yourself the question, all right, who in this church irritates me? Who is it that's been gossiping about me? Who is it that has slandered me? Who is it who has harmed me? And then you say to yourself, what is it that I am doing for his good, for her good? That's God's love. And it immediately catches people who are unconverted on the wrong foot. Because an unconverted person, the moment you say that, they're already going, oh, no, no, no. It's very stupid, very stupid. And so on, already, because self-will is still on the throne. And if you find yourself reacting like that, just know 
you are not yet converted. Full stop. Now argue with me if you want. Let's meet on the judgment day. Because this is God's love. God was doing it for his enemies. But another sense in which this is an obligation is not so much that we have an example, but that we also have an inspiration, a a, a stimulus when we have looked at his example. So when he says, if God so loved us, if God has loved us in this way, if God has loved us to such an extent, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's basically the way in which you feel when somebody's father has done a big favor for you. You you feel like you ought to do something for them as well. We'll soon be learning about the way in which uh, David, after he became king now of the United Nation of Israel, the way in which he asked around among the servants in the palace, is there no other son of Saul who has survived? And he was told, actually, Mephibosheth, the same one that we were, was mentioned in passing, the one that the nurse, the maid was running with, and then he fell down and broke his legs. That actually, he is around. And David said, bring him here. And when he was brought, David said, For the sake of your dad, Jonathan, I'm going to have you to start eating with me on this table in this palace. And he blessed him. Why? It was because of the sense of debt that he owed Jonathan. We were together reading uh, 1 Samuel and seeing the way in which Jonathan who ought to have been king, gave any form of fighting for the throne over to David. And many times when his own father tried to kill David, Jonathan warned him and he fled. So there was a sense of death that that David felt he owed And consequently, when he now had a son of Jonathan, since your father so loved me, I'm going to love you. There was an inspiration, a a stimulus from within his own heart towards the child of Jonathan. Well, friends, in the same way, If the Father has so loved us, surely we also ought to love one another. 
we ought to love the other children of the father. Because he's, he's shown us his love, yes, as an example, but he's also shown us his love. We are the beneficiaries of the father's love. Therefore, we feel constrained to love in appreciation of the love that has come to us. These are my father's children. They are my father's children. Surely, I ought to love them. That's the second way in which we, we have this obligation. And I think it's important, brethren, because, you see, Christianity must never ultimately be lived out because of outward pressure. It must never be like that. You mustn't love because, you know, you've, you've been hit real hard by Pastor Simon. You know, often you hear Christians say something like this, you know, maybe the pastor preaches a sermon on, on prayer. And, you know, the following weekend, the following time there's the church prayer meeting, you know, people sort of come in droves, the place is packed. And say, ah, what happened? Ah, Vali to Karipira sana last week. <laughs> you know, we really rebuked last time. So, you know, sheepishly now we, we have to to be there in prayer. That's not the way Christianity is supposed to be lived out. Christianity is supposed to be lived out from the inside out. The inspiration must be from the inside. There must be a sense in which we are excited, we are thrilled, we just want to. And one of the reasons is love. Love, love. David wasn't sitting there looking at the Ten Commandments and finding one which says, you, you need to love the children of those who have loved you. And then saying, you know, on the judgment day, God will ask me whether I did this. So, uh, servants, is there any children of Jonathan still around? You know, there's this commandment which is here. I better, no, 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 no. It was just a sense of gratitude from the inside out, flowing. I want to bless a child of Jonathan. He's done so much for me. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. But when you are doing something purely from the outside, Just know, God is not pleased with you. He's not. There was once, it's a long time ago now, uh, I attended a funeral. And you know, in a lot of our funerals, because of the numbers, people have to cook for, for the mourners. And uh, we're just coming back from burying, and I went behind the house to wash my hands and I found the people cooking, talking. And there were short tempers. The fuses were blowing all over the place. But I remember uh, one particular lady answering the other and saying, ah, I want to... I'll speak in English. 
They are dying too much. They are dying too much. You know, last week we were cooking there and now we are cooking again. And I hear there is another one in hospital. I am sure we will be cooking again. <laughs> you know, it is worse when it is spoken in vernacular. <laughs> and then they are, you know, with those big uh, cooking sticks. Speaking about, no, it's too much. They're dying too much, these people. No! Now, you know, when you're like that, God is saying, look, just drop that cooking stick and go home. When in the pressure is on the outside and that's why you're doing it, stop it! Just go! Because Christianity is supposed to be from the inside out. Supposed to be doing it joyfully. And the reason why we do it joyfully is because we are conscious of being beneficiaries ourselves of a good God who has not dealt with us According to our sins, he's been gracious, he's been merciful, he's been loving towards us, and therefore we want to also love others back, and especially his children. We want to love them back. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are simply responding to love. And in responding to love, we are loving God himself first. But we are also loving his children. Let me ask you, how are you matching up to that? How? Is the cross of Christ inspiring you to love God's children? Even those who rub you the wrong. Those who've wronged you. Does the cross of Christ inspire you to put away self-will and to want to do them good? Again, it's up to you to check yourself. Because if you refuse to check yourself, don't worry. You will check yourself on the judgment day. Except it will be too late at that point. For you to do anything about it. Well there's a second implication. And the first one was that of obligation. The second is of significance. Notice John begins this second implication. By asserting the, in, the fact that God is invisible. And therefore no one can see him. See him. And no one has ever seen him. Verse 12. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Immediately you start asking yourself, what is he up to? In talking to us about the obvious. I mean, God is invisible. So why bring in this point? Well, the reason is quite simple. 
Although he cannot be seen directly, God can be seen indirectly. And he is seen indirectly through your love. That's the way he's seen. It's simple. An example I can give you is that of demons. Nobody has ever seen a demon. Nobody. But you can tell when a person is possessed by a demon, isn't it? Unless you've never seen one. You can tell when a person is possessed by a demon. The reaction of the body, especially with respect to any spiritual reality that you confront them with. Especially the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So although you, 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 you don't see the demon, you can certainly say that I have met a demon-possessed person. You can say it. Well, let's go from the bad and now go to the good. What John is essentially saying here is, we, we cannot see God. But we can see a God-possessed person. We can. Because the attributes of God manifest through that person. And here it is, therefore. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, first of all, God abides in us. That's the first. So do you want to know if God is in you? The obvious proof of it is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the proof. Because when the Spirit of God is residing in you, the fruit of the Spirit of God will manifest through you. And the chief fruit is that of love. That's the chief fruit. That's what John is saying here. So he's not saying that if we love one another, then after that, God will come and start living in us. No, no, no. That's not the, the meaning of this statement. The meaning of this statement is, if we love one another, it is the proof that God is abiding in us. It is the proof that God is abiding in us. Now that's, that's serious, brethren. It's serious in this way. That if you don't love others, and remember, this has nothing to do with Valentine's Day, okay? If you don't love others, this is about loving the way God loved through Christ. If you don't love others, it is that God is not in you. That's what it is saying. You may have been baptized, you may have been going to church all your life, you may have done one or two things like cooking at a funeral, remember those women. You may have done all those things. But if you don't have this kind of love of just described, God is not in you. You are simply worldly. You are simply flesh. You are simply the way you were born. And consequently, 
it is proof you are not yet a Christian. Now that's a powerful point of testing. And then he ends by saying, when it is positive, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now that might be a little confusing, but it simply means that his love reaches its uh, intended goal. It reaches its perfection. It reaches its fulfillment. It reaches its final goal. That's all it means. And how do we interpret that? Well, it's simple. You see, what love tries to do is to turn gloom into joy. It tries to turn pain into comfort. It tries to, to turn slavery into freedom. It tries to turn a life of disaster into a life that's a blessing. That's love. That's love. And God's love aims at that. Now, part of it, in fact, the major part of it, is getting our souls to heaven. Because when we get to heaven, there will be bliss, there will be joy, there will be freedom, there will be everything we can think about. We will be there. But, and this is the point, between now and heaven, there still is a gap that must be fulfilled. That must be filled, rather. And it is filled as believers manifest the love of God towards one another. In other words, a believer is not simply somebody who's saying, God loves me. Jesus has died on the cross. I'm going to heaven. Oh, God is really loving towards me as his child. That's true, but it's more than that. It is this. I had a funeral. I was sick. I was in an accident. I had a robbery. I failed to pay my school fees. I had no money. And God's children overwhelmed me with their love. They visited me. They comforted me. They spoke into my life. They, they gave me the finances that I desperately need. They put a roof over my shoulder. Oh, God loves me. That's what he means here. By you loving one another, you are perfecting the love of God. You are finishing it off. So that God's children are able to say, yes, God loves me. I've seen that love. I experienced that love in the midst of his people. The God I can't see. Believe you me, he has visited me in my trials. I can't see him. But believe you me, he's been here. He's put food on my table. He's put clothes on my back. He's done so much for me. I can't see him, but I want to assure you, he's been blessing me. 
through his people. And often, friends, that is what closes the mouths of atheists and unbelievers. Because that love, you won't find it in political parties. You won't. In political parties, they're constantly elbowing one another, especially when they want to be running mates. You know, Zambian situations now. That's, that's political life. You, you won't find it anywhere else except among the people of God. And that's what causes a lot of unbelievers when they've been everywhere and then they are among God's people and they see this love. It's what causes them to say, you know what? God is real. How else can I explain the way these people love one another? How else? God is real. This coming Wednesday, Pastor Sunkutu will be going off to India for a kidney transplant. He needed no less than 200,000 kwacha. The appeal was made among God's people. People were totally unrelated to him. The money has been raised. It has. You tell me there's no God. Tell me. Then give me an explanation for that. Give it to me. Give it to me. I want to assure you that brother is sitting there saying, God loves me. What is it? God loves me. How? Through his people. They have sacrificed. They heard of my need and they went like this. Put their hands in their pockets and put the money. God loves me. It's what adds potency to our witnessing to the world. It's what causes them to realize this is not a club. We're not just trying to increase membership. This is life. This is real. There is a God with whom we have to do. Look at these people and the way in which they are giving and sacrificing and doing so much for one another. God must be here. God must be here. He must be real. Is that message coming through your life? Is it? Is it? Those who know you, are they able to say, this person gives time, gives money, gives his abilities for the good of others, and sometimes even does it 
sacrificially. And it's not because they are close to him, but because they are God's children. Can they say that about you? Not because you announce it to the whole world, that's what I'm doing, but where there is a life that is overflowing with goodness, overflowing with love, it just cannot be hidden. Absolutely impossible. I want to say again, those who know you, those who live with you, are they able to say, God must be there? Well, brethren, let me hurry on to close. Where does this leave you? Where does it leave you? Because remember, this is a test about salvation. And to sit there saying, no, 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 you know, it's for the, the spiritual, you know. Those who have what people would want to hide behind at the gift of love. Those who have the gift of love. You wonder which version they found a gift of love in. The gift of love. This, this is not about any gift. It's about the fruit of the spirit. And I want to repeat, stop hiding in a definition of love that you see on television or movies. The Bible gives us a true definition of love. And it is the biblical definition of love that we'll be, we, we will have to, to, to deal with when we stand before Almighty God on the judgment day. He will say, I am love. I have displayed what love looks like. Look at the cross. And then he will turn to you and say, so how do you measure up to that? Look at your last one week. Or maybe you may say I had a very terrible week. Fine, let's stretch it to two weeks. Okay, you're already looking depressed. Let's make it one month. Are you able to see there a heart that just rejoices in giving? Delights in giving. Giving of time. Giving of money. Giving of my own abilities to serve others. Are you seeing a life that is like that? And especially for God's children. The children of my great benefactor. God. I just want to bless them. Is that what you're seeing there? Now, as I said at the beginning of my sermon, if, if you, you fail, it doesn't mean now you should try and start pretending to be or putting up some great effort to, to do better. No, 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 no. This is not about human works and self-effort. Remember, it must flow from the inside out. Out of gratitude. So instead, what you should do is to go to Jesus Christ in prayer and say to him, Lord, I can see 
that self-will is still in charge of my life. And if I continue this way, I will perish in the end. Your word is clear. I am not saved. Lord Jesus, save me and save me now. Change my heart so that I may be able to love the way in which you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love those that you seek to save. That should be your prayer. It is not you trying to be something else. It is you crying to Jesus Christ to change you. In other words, keep your eyes on the cross. Gaze upon the cross. Fix your gaze on Calvary. Until the love of God in Christ Jesus melts your heart. That God should love a sinner such as I should yearn to change my sorrow into bliss. No rest until he has planned to bring me nigh. How wonderful is love like this. Such love, such wondrous love that God should love not his friend, but a sinner such as I. How wonderful is love like this. And then to say, Lord, make me like you. That many other people will be able to say the same about me. That I loved and loved and loved. Besides issues of relationships, I love inspired by you. I loved. Because I've kept my eyes on a love that is wonderful beyond description. Let's make sure each one of us fixes our eyes on Calvary until God's love so flows out of us that this place will be known as a place of love and much more than that when you die, God will say to you, come into this place of love. Amen.